we are exceptionally social beings. Uh, it's probably what is, if not probably, it is definitely what has produced our great survival advantage, what has made us the dominant species on the planet, which is as uh, a species we can connect, interact, and develop emotional synchrony with great alacrity and speed. While I talk to you right now and I present a whole bunch of ideas, uh, or if we met in person and we talked and I was presenting or talking to you in words, behind the scenes, unconsciously, we would both, you and I, would be essentially checking each other out, uh, our movements, our gestures, our tone of voice. The right hemisphere, unconsciously, would be looking at each other to see if we're safe to connect with, if we feel safe with each other. Uh, this ability to establish emotional synchrony means that we can connect not only by seeing which emotional state we're in, but we attune to each other, which means we lock each other in, we, take, we attend to each other, and then we begin to unconsciously mimic each other's movements, each other's actions, gestures, uh, which puts us into a synchronous state where we can interact smoothly. For example, if you're in a room with somebody who yawns, you will feel the urge to yawn. If you're in a room with somebody who anxiously taps their feet, you'll feel the impulse to start tapping your feet. If you're in the room with somebody who suddenly is very tired, you'll feel that impulse to relax. Human beings are set to mimic each other, and the great psychologist Bandura noted that this is one of the primary ways that we learn by, it's called unconscious implicit mimicry. We unconsciously note the movements and the actions and the behaviors of each other and we start uh, acting them out. So this happens all the time. We're constantly doing this. We're constantly uh, uh, seeing each other's physical states of being, how activated we are, whether we're jumpy, whether we're relaxed, whether we're fidgety, whether we're not, and we begin to copy it. And this is, of course, a great benefit. Without this ability to emotionally move towards other people, we wouldn't be able to emotionally regulate ourselves. When people are put in solitary confinement in prisons and are not given access to other people, we spin out, we spiral out, because the human brain is set up to literally gravitate emotionally to the people that we are around. It's what makes us socializing beings. It's what allows us to uh, move into different settings and to be and get up to speed and to fit in well. If you think about it, every single friend 
you have ever had started out as a complete and total stranger, or most of them. At one point, every friend of yours started out as a stranger. And very often in your life, even though we have a past where other people back in the Serengeti, uh, other tribes of people might have been very dangerous for us, but somehow over the course of human evolution, we have developed the ability to very quickly spot friends, to feel comfortable around others. We can move into a new job and quickly find and isolate people who are, we feel, going to be friendly, people we can attune to, people we'll feel comfortable with. So we have a unique ability to befriend complete and total strangers, and that is largely not the result of the left hemisphere, which does it all by, what movies do you like? What band do you listen to? What, you know, I don't know, what food do you like to eat? All of which is crap. It's not what allows you to trust another person. You can meet somebody who likes, uh, I don't know what movies, I, I saw this movie, Ex Machina, Machina? I don't know what it's called. It's a pretty good movie. But if I met you and you liked that movie, I wouldn't immediately assume that you were safe and you are emotionally attuned and I feel comfortable with you. I would actually trust my intuition, and my intuition is forged by the work that my right hemisphere is doing behind the scenes, unconsciously taking in your movements, checking out how relaxed your facial attunement to me, if you're paying attention, how you relate to me. And from that, my unconscious, my right hemisphere, provides a yes, I like this person, or no, alarm bells, not so sure. And we, we spend a lot of our lives relying on that, and, so, and, and by and large, very often it's accurate. Sometimes it's not so accurate. I've given talks about that as well. But um, the ability to copy the external states of other people to empathize, feel another person's moods, uh, which allows us to empathize and sympathize and, and help people when they're really grieving, sad, lost, lonely, allows us to connect, is one of the great human strengths. And, here's the big and, it's also what's responsible for one of the great forms of human stress, which is tonight's topic, which is emotion contagion. The very process that we unconsciously are set up to imitate, to feel what other people feel, to reproduce in our own bodies the fidgetiness, the nervousness, the anxiousness, the, 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 the sadness that the people around us feel, is the very same mechanism that also creates the emotion contagion that results in a good deal, not all, there's many sources of human stress and, and anxiety and discomfort, but it's a, it's a very prominent source. Emotion contagion is a very, very large field in behavioral studies, clinical psychology, even neuroscience has done a lot of research into emotion contagion and found 
the different parts of the body implicated, not just the right hemisphere, but the parietal lobe and the fusiform gyrus, etc. So we have dedicated parts of the brain that are meant to synchronize us with the people around us so that we can essentially interact and connect. But what happens if the people we are with are anxious schmucks at times? What happens if we are around people who are completely bent out of shape or people who are constantly pessimistic or dour? What happens when we are around uh, so-called extremely nervous people? We are set up just as much to uh, take on and move towards their moods. In fact, In fact, quite sadly, due to the brain's negativity bias, we are even more prone to mimic the anxiousness and the negative emotions of others than we are to move towards the joy of others. And nobody ever complains about contagious joy. I've never had anybody come into a mentoring session and say, I'm so tired of hanging out with those upbeat people that I work with. It's not a conversation that I've had as of yet. But I do have constantly hear people talk about emotionally contagious environments where uh, they can pick up the, the stresses, anxieties, the dramas of the people around us. There's three different kinds of <coughs> emotion contagion, and two of them I won't be addressing at all because they're uh, not particularly interesting to me. Um, and I, I have to give these talks, so i got to kind of, kind of be interested in them. Uh, explicit is when somebody tells you what mood you should be in. If you've ever been in a boss where some, a work where some boss goes, come on, people, get busy. Let's get a move on. Start, start, you know, you know, start moving. That's what's known as explicit. It's an overt demand that you change a body state, a mood, uh, that you get anxious. And um, the second kind is manipulative. Uh, Manipulative is when people don't make an overt demand. It's a covert demand that you change your mood. Uh, A good example is uh, a friend of mine who just got a job in real estate told me that he... Uh, went around with a very successful realtor and uh, noted that the realtor closed so many deals by making everybody who came in anxious. And the realtor himself was very, you know, was pretty upbeat guy, but he would go into the anxious realtor mode where he'd go, this place is going to, you're going to you're going to be losing the deal of your life, etc. I don't know how he did it, but he he knew how to manipulate people into changing from uh, their normal uh, state of being to a state of being where they really felt that they were going to miss out on something unless they acted. So we can be manipulated into emotion contagion. My mother had a different form of, at times, manipulation. Uh, I found it very charming. It, was, um, it worked on me for many years. 
it was an advanced form of guilt tripping. <laughs> whenever, whenever I would express any dismay or disappointment with her, which happens inevitably in any, you know, in any relationship, there's going to be disappointing experiences. But whenever I would verbalize any disappointment, my mother would go, "You're right. I'm the worst mother ever." <laughs> Working nine hours a day so that you could go to your school, so that you could have that bass guitar that you insisted on for Christmas. She never failed to remind me of that one. <laughs> so no matter what mood I was in, especially if it was a little bit uh, disappointed, she would manipulate my mood into a kind of guilt. You're right. How dare I? I think I was probably 18 before I caught on to that, that, that whole the, the spiel that worked so well to manipulate my, my mood away from the ungrateful kid to the, to the guilty he ever said anything uh, child. So, but the, the kind I'm talking about tonight is implicit, which is when we unconsciously imitate the anxiousness, the stress, or the depression or sadness of people. All environments have emotional climates. All, all settings and situations. Relationships have emotional climates. I've seen couples that look just miserable together. You ever see them walking around? They're, they look sometimes like they're very beautiful people, but they look miserable. <laughs> you wonder what joy they bring. And then there's, uh, there's uh, families that can look anxious or can, that have the emotional flavor of, of, of uh, being producers in the world or families that are, uh, you know, uh, places that get together and complain uh, my father had a bit of that kind of old world paranoia whenever I'd get together with him the, the emotional climate would kind of be a paranoia about everybody outside he once called me up while I was at work my dad and he said Josh if anybody kills me I know who will be the person who did it <laughs> I was like oh my god who what and he was like we just moved in, and a neighbor came up and did something very suspicious. And I said, what? And he said, he brought us cookies. Uh, I, literally, this is what I come from. It's amazing. I mean, and I said, he brought you cookies. And he said, yes. I didn't eat them. <laughs> That's very suspicious, Jeff. <laughs> so there was, with my dad, a certain kind of us-against-them mentality that, uh, that kind of reigned. So uh, workplaces have emotional climates. Bands have emotional climates. I, uh, bands can have one emotional climate when one member isn't there, and then one emotional climate when an individual in the band shows up. I, a wonderful example of this, when I was in college, 
the band King Crimson had gotten back together after years of, of falling apart, and they came and they played. And um, so I was hanging out uh, obsequiously with them, uh, and uh, all three of them were in a really jovial mood. But then when the lead guitarist, Robert Fripp, came in, they all became sullen and miserable. <laughs> he was like this dour, fascistic kind of guy that nobody else in the band liked, and their entire mood shifted whenever he was around. Um, so, you know, we're all subject to the emotional uh, settings of people, and there's two kinds of people that really tend to emotionally affect us. The first is naturally uh, people that we are in some sort of subservient role to. A boss, a teacher, a parent, someone who has some degree of power over us. Those people, if you work at a business and they own the business, whatever, uh, anybody that we work under or in some way are responsible or answerable to, we have to attune to them, and because we have to attune to them, we take on their moods and we, are, we find ourselves contagious to their moods. And the second is, of course, the people that we are emotionally reliant on. Girlfriends, boyfriends, uh, siblings, people that we rely on emotionally. Anybody that we attune to, we focus on, we feel uh, an emotional reliance upon will also. So it's very important that we learn how to differentiate between uh, the emotion contagion that happens due to other people versus our own internal stresses that come about due to life stressors for example, our own financial stresses, our own issues, our own worries about friends and relationships. So there's our own real anxiety and stress, which we need to be able to distinguish from the anxiety and stress that we pick up from those we're around. And that's important because the way we treat and work with both kinds of stress, anxiety, and emotion dysregulation is different depending upon whether it's something that is innate, that is something that is uh, inherent or is coming from a core internal event in one's experience or life versus simply the emotions and the anxiousness that we have picked up from those around us. It's important as well, especially for people who work in environments where we are especially susceptible to emotion contagion. I read this study that people who work in healthcare or caregiving uh, or people who are very empathetic, who care about the people they work with, are sadly the most emotionally contagious. They are the most vulnerable to the emotions of others around them. So, uh, depending upon literally how much we care about other people, we become more vulnerable to imitating, mimicking, picking up their emotional states. So, 
I can tell the difference between a stress that is something I've picked up from somebody I'm mentoring or working with versus a, a stress or an anxiety that is inherent to my own life stressors. One, because um, emotion contagions tend to be found largely in twitches, shoulders being tight, jaw being locked, fidgeting, uh, picking up repetitive movements. Um, they are, I get caught up in needing to get things done. And very often, the uh, what will immediately happen is when I'm in an emotionally contagious state, if I go and I hang out with somebody else who's in a different emotional, con emotional mood, my state will change very quickly. If my moods have been, in other words, caught from person A, and then I hang out with B, and B is, instead of A's anxiousness, B is relaxed, confident, secure, if my anxiety is simply one of contagion, my anxiety will be alleviated simply by changing the people that I'm around. If, however, my anxiety is due to a repressed feeling that I'm not acknowledging or to life stressors that I haven't dealt with, then it won't go away even if I change from a person who's stressed out to a person who's buoyant. Changing the emotional the setting, the people I'm with, will not help if it's a inherent core anxiousness, vulnerability, or sadness. Is this making sense? So the first way you can tell if your anxiousness is something that you've picked up from somebody else is change the people that you're hanging around with. Now this sounds pretty simple, and yet the Buddha gave one talk after another about this. All of the, the suttas, in fact, with the house, with the, the Buddhas gave to householders, he mentions at one point or another, be careful of the people you hang around with. Note the people you hang around with, because they might be stressed out or worked up about issues that are not worthy. And if you hang out with them, you're going to get caught up. In the Iriputaka Sutta, he literally says, you turn into the people you hang out with. So one way is simply to know. Another way to tell core feelings versus emotional contagions, core feelings I register in my stomach and my chest. If I'm upset about a relational issue or if I'm upset about uh, financial stress, I'll feel my own financial stress in my stomach and I'll feel relational disappointments in my chest. But they're in the core areas of the body. Emotion contagion, I never feel there. Emotion contagion is up here in my shoulders, it's in my fidgety jaw, it's in, uh, uh, it's in a kind of anxious movements that are fidgetiness that I've picked up. It's interesting that uh, in order to work with being able to be with people but not to become emotionally contagious, to be able to synchronize emotionally with others without being pulled entirely in 
to their emotional states. We have to know the difference between uh, what is enmeshment on the one hand and disconnecting on the far extreme versus detachment, which is healthy. So, enmeshment is when I get so pulled into your dramas and your situations in life that I feel like I'm involved. You ever you know, watch a TV show where it's a horror movie and the person goes up into the attic by themselves and there's a part of me going, No, what are you doing? Why are you going up there? Why don't you call up a friend? Who needs to hear? Who, need, who goes up into the attic when there's a strange sound anyway? Why would you do that? Leave the house. Go and do money. Go to sushi. Why are you going up there? But we get pulled in. And that's enmeshment. When we don't know the difference between our dramas and the dramas of friends, and we get literally sucked in. That's enmeshment. Where we can't tell where our lives end and another person's dramas are issues. Very often when I hear about other people's uh, the two enmeshing things that I have to work with is when people I hear people working with abusive bosses and abusive family members because I part of me gets sucked in and I, I want to fix and solve and that's another key signal of enmeshment when I need to fix and solve because I can't listen because I'm inculcated I'm now feeling their distress as well and I want to say you've got to quit that job you can't put up with that so that's enmeshment. <laughs> uh, detachment is, uh, I'm sorry, disconnection is when we literally can't be with the emotional mood or tenor of somebody else and we start looking away. We're, we start literally pulling away. We literally abandon them. And interestingly enough, a lot of, you know, I read, I was looking up for this talk out of curiosity, like what has been written about emotion contagion, and there's a lot of articles about it. They're almost uniformly pretty abandoning in that most of them say, if you're around somebody who's, uh, who's suffering too much, just disconnect from them, which is not great advice. There are times when we have to be able to show up for people who are sad, lonely, anxious, without completely just, oh, look at the weather outside, nice day. So that's disconnecting. When we literally pull away, we sever the connection, the attunement, uh, the synchrony at all. The, the third, the healthy choice is what's known as detachment, which is finding a balance where we can be with and empathize, yet not be pulled in to the other person's emotion to the extent that our entire emotional hue changes completely. Where I can listen to your suffering, but still know everything's going to be okay. It's a little bit like a mother with a child, a toddler, who the toddlers run into a scary dog in the park, and the mother goes, oh, that was so scary. So she mirrors the child's fear, but then she smiles and she says, everything's going to be okay. I'm here with you. You're safe. That's a detached empathy. It knows, it understands the emotions of others, but it doesn't get sucked in, pulled in, implicated. So how do we do that? One, literally body posture. 
when I'm around and working with people, I train myself over the years to not lean in and have my body get pulled in to I keep my back straight, my posture relaxed, but back. It's, if you ever watch people who are enmeshed with an email that they, they're angry about, as they're on the computer, they move closer and closer and closer to it. And finally their nose is about... And then they write something that they don't want to write. And they, but when we're relaxed, when we get an irritating email and we want to respond, if we keep the body upright and we breathe with a long out-breath, we can see, oh, this is suffering, this is somebody who's stressed out, this is somebody who's sending us something that we don't want to hear, but I'm not being pulled into it. It's like when you're watching a television show where the character's going up into the attic. If we don't get pulled in, if we keep back, keep the body straight, relaxed, breathing comfortably, I can watch the show, but I don't get terrified and pulled in. Second, note the areas of the body that start to pick up the mood of other people and relax those areas. I, when I am in a motion contagion, I will start to feel my shoulders get tight and my jaw lock, and I'll start to feel fidgety. So what I'll do is I'll relax the shoulders especially when I'm doing mentoring, I'll just constantly relax the shoulders, relax the back of the neck, breathe out comfortably. So I'm still hearing and present, and I'm even feeling a degree of the emotions that are being expressed, but I'm not allowing my body to pick up their entire mood. And when I sabotage that of contagion via the body, that stops emotion contagion dead in its tracks. Because implicit emotion contagion always happens through the body. I pick up your anxiety by my body getting anxious and then that turns into my mind getting anxious. If I stop it in the body, then my mind will not be pulled into your anxiety, your stress, your sadness. I'll be with you, I'll stay with you, I'll care about you, I'll take care of you, but I won't get pulled into your suffering. I also set an intention before I go into each interaction. Setting an intention is one of the great Buddhist techniques of reminding ourselves what our role is. So I'll set an intention, which is I am here to listen. Simply by saying to myself, I am here to listen, if I remove that I'm here to fix, solve, correct, you know, be the rescuer, be the person who's the, the, the hero or the person who's going to solve things, if I just say I'm here to relax and listen, that allows me to simply stay back and not get pulled in. And finally, at the end of the day, after I work with people, I have a soothing ritual where I go and um, 
God, that sounded awful. Soothing ritual. I go home and I jerk off. Now. I heard myself saying a soothing ritual. Like, oh my God, who said that? Anyway. I go and I, I, I meditate. I sit, I relax, I, I, you know, I, I get calm, I, I remove the stories from the mind, I just sit, I breathe, I listen to, I, you know, right now it's nice and warm out, so I sit outside by the park, by the water, and I just have a ritual that allows me to put all of the stories and get back into a neutral state. And having that ritual, I have now, over so many years, established it as being the thing that, that, that essentially flushes the emotions out and allows me to become present. That just doing that now allows me to let go of everything I've heard and, and all the moods I've been around during the day so that I can show up for the rest of my life. This is why I, I've never meditated in the morning. I appreciate why well, I have when I go on retreat. That's so, I do that on retreats. But most of the time in my day-to-day -day life, my meditation happens between the end of work and the evening so that I can have a transition and I can ease out of that, that state of living in all the stories and events and dramas that I've heard and I can become present again. So that's tonight's talk. <laughs>